the Video Essay Podcast. I'm your host, Will DeGravio. Today, I am thrilled to share a conversation that I had many months ago with Catherine Fowler, a scholar based at the University of Otago in New Zealand. Catherine curated the most recent issue of the scholarly journal In Transition, a special issue devoted to feminist videographic diptychs. On today's show, we discuss the origins of the project, various aspects of found footage, moving image artist, and video essay art, and all the individual pieces included in the special issue. Now, it is important to note that one piece, Miriam Tafakori's Chased Unchased, was not finished at the time we recorded this conversation many months ago. Um, so what Kathy has kindly done for us is included an audio reflection that she recorded, uh, which I've included at the end of this episode to, you know, give just due to Miriam's absolutely fantastic piece. As always, you can learn more about the Video Essay podcast at videoessay.com and subscribe to the show's free newsletter, Notes on Videographic Criticism. I'm so grateful to Kathy for taking the time to talk with me, and I hope that you all enjoy this episode and the special issue, which again is available to watch right now at In Transition. Those who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you just briefly introduce yourself and what brought you know what brought you here today? <laughs> like quite a few of your guests, I think uh, my consciousness or involvement in video essays began around 2016, 2017. So a year after In Transition started publishing and appearing at SCMS and other conferences. Um, and that involvement began with an invitation from Australian scholars uh, to be part of an eye-tracking project. Um, it was a really interesting project. I think it's quite rare that eye-tracking equipment is used uh, to watch people's eyes as they're screening uh, images. Uh, so as part of that project uh, involving Sean Redmond at Deakin University, Claire Perkins at Monash and Tessa Dwyer at Monash. We made, Claire and I made a video essay um, where we used eye tracking data from the end of the passenger. Antonio is the passenger. So uh, this was quite unusual as well because eye tracking usually tracks films in which there are obvious cues, you know, so there's a there's a camera movement and eyes move accordingly but we were thinking about slow cinema and what happens to uh, the eyes and how people watch when there aren't those cues so that was a great pleasure but I really only conceptualized that video essay you know I didn't have anything to do with the making of it um, and then around the same time there was a bit of a kind of surge of interest in Australia and New Zealand and uh 
Sean, Claire and I organised um, a video essay symposium, um, which was kind of a, a pre-conference to the main Australian New Zealand conference. And that was very rewarding. Uh, and papers were published in uh, Cinema Journal, although it changed its title then. So it was a teaching dossier that we published. Um, and then we also had this invitation to publish something at the Journal Media Education, JMPE, sorry, Journal of Media Practice and Education. So it's for that journal that I started thinking about this idea of the diptych. Can I ask you one question first? Because I'm just, I'm just curious about, because I hadn't seen this video of yours of the eye tracking with uh, the passenger. So I'm going to watch this as soon as we hang up, because it's been a while, but am I correct? The entry of the passenger is kind of this framed like, uh, what is it, like an entryway type thing, and the action occurs off? An iron uh, railing in front of a window or a gate, yeah. Uh-huh, right. And so what was your experience kind of working uh, conceptually with um, the video essay? Like, yeah, just do, do you remember kind of how you approached it from that beginning stage and kind of getting your feet wet? That's a really interesting question, actually, because... Um, Immediately, for Claire and I, we wanted it to be poetic rather than explanatory. And a lot of eye tracking data is used to give explanation. You know, it's in a scientific way, um, in a positivist way. Whereas we really wanted uh, to kind of honour the um, ethos of art cinema and Antonioni's art cinema in particular, uh, and we were really fascinated by the aesthetic uh, elements of this eye tracking. So there are different ways in which you can represent the, you know, what the eyes are doing aesthetically. And we chose this red circle. So what we did was we had kind of three parts to the video essay, um, and each part the red circle was doing something differently. And I suppose thinking about now we were probably borrowing from installation art as we were very much, I mean, it could have been put in a, a gallery um, and the slowness of it, you know, the duration of it, uh, we started off with a quote as well, um, meant that there's a really uncanny feeling when you watch it because what you're doing with the red circles is you're watching someone else's eyes, <laughs> you know, around the frame so there's a kind of meta element to it so yeah I think maybe the um, most significant part of that answer is this idea that it was immediately a poetic experience that we wanted to create and I think that you, you know again for those who may not be familiar with your your background like you did your PhD on Chantal Ackerman wrote the recently wrote the BFI uh, classics book on John Dealman and so you have this existing interest in art cinema, and it's really interesting to hear you talk about how you're borrowing from uh, gallery works. I think it relates to to this project uh, that, that you're working on uh, currently. And so to return to what you were started before I asked you this question, um, you know, what was kind of the impetus behind this project on feminist videographic diptychs um, and this, this special issue? Well, that's a great, um, a great hinge into this. A reminder of the dead time video, definitely. Um, well, the kind of the theoretical and conceptual perspectives through which I approached or and c continue to approach 
film essays come very much from, you know, what we've just said in a way. So 20 years of working on female authorship in film, both Chantal Ackerman and Sally Potter and many other European uh, filmmakers. I, and 20 years of working on experimental forms in cinema and later in galleries. So I've, I've had this project uh, or platform of being really interested in um, common strategies that exist for practice-based research. Um, and I think that boils down to two areas. The first, which I brought to this project, is how femin feminist video essays can do feminism. So how can we advance feminist critique and theory through video essays? Uh, and that directly comes from going back to Jeanne Dielman in 2020 to write this book, you know, having not really thought about it too much. <laughs> I guess I couldn't really get it out of my head, but not thought about it too much for at least a decade. And remembering just how much feminist film theory was shaped by feminist film practice in the 70s. You really had a whole decade when, you know, feminist film theorists like Janet Bergstrom, Sandy Flitterman Lewis, uh, those writing for Camera Obscura were absolutely looking to practice to give them their ideas. So I started, you know, thinking, um, could this happen again, but through the video essay? So can feminist video essays influence feminist media theory? And can this special issue, I suppose, make the same kinds of claims that a written special journal issue can? And we can talk about that as we go through the interview. I certainly, well, I think all of us, actually, all of the contributors have discovered that comparison is good to think within feminist ways. Um, and then the second, um, the second kind of perspective that I bring to video essays, again, one that you gestured towards, is my background in experimental cinema. Um, and this is what led to the essay in the Journal of Media Practice and Education, where I first started thinking about the videographic diptych. I should explain something about that journal because it helps to think about why I wrote what I did, which is that it's largely a journal um, filled with essays by British scholars, most of whom are practitioners. So they're teaching practice, and most of whom in the last 15 years have had to justify their practice as research in some way. This will be a familiar discourse that um, listeners will know about. Uh, so, but having said that, there'd been nothing written about video essays in this journal. So we really are talking about two different audiences, I suppose. So in my essay, I was thinking about, well, you know, there are these things going on that practitioners do, and there are these other things that are just developing that academics do, uh, and they're quite different, and yet they're very similar. Uh, and for me, that similarity came from, you know, the history of um, alternative and experimental cinema, but equally uh, the history of films made for galleries at that time, in all of which there was this kind of common reusage of film footage, so remaking of films. 
So I wanted to kind of suggest that there should be this joined up community who are all doing similar things, possibly for different reasons. But, you know, once we join them up, we could think about what are the continuities then? So what are the continuities across people who are practitioners um, and are entering academia and people who aren't practitioners but are starting to practice? And equally, what are the continuities across experimental, avant-garde and artists moving image? And this idea of, as I say, remaking footage, but then also using comparison, um, typically through more than one screen or in other ways, seem to be a really nice um, hub to, to bring it all together. I'm very invested in this question of the relationship between like video essay and practice research. And I, I so appreciate and I should mention everything that you're talking about now, your article and, and everything else I'll, we'll link to at thevideoessay.com. So if, as we're referencing these things, um, please go and, and, and check that out. But I'm wondering what you make of, in thinking about a specific scholarly context, um, one of the things that I find so interesting about the relationship between practice research and video essay, I'm speaking very generally and speaking also I'm involved with the journal Screenworks, which is a journal of practice research um, that's you know based in the UK, is it's very interesting to me that practice research, as you say, has this history of having to justify its own existence, where it generally kind of makes its way to the journal at the end of its, uh, or maybe not the end, but you know, it's, it's generally existed in a form perhaps somewhere else in the world, maybe at a film festival or in a gallery, and then it, it kind of is then later sort of reflected and published uh, at that point. Whereas increasingly with video essay, we're seeing that they are made for publication. Um, and it is the case with this issue here. Um, I don't know if, I don't necessarily know if I have a question <laughs> um, related to that, but I'm wondering uh, what you make, I guess, of, of that distinction um, in, 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 with regard to, critical practice yeah well I mean I don't know whether whether we should have a discussion about if that's a good thing that in a sense there's less um well I suppose video essays are less about the screening space and more about the publishing space and vice versa for the other but what you're saying has made me think carefully about this idea of authority so those media practitioners you know their authority comes from their expertise. Clearly, they've trained or, you know, lots of experience making. Whereas for us, our authority comes from those um, contexts and those things that we have to do to well, as an academic. Um, so I do gesture towards that a little bit in my essay, you know, uh, and I think that one way in which that's significant for our discussion as a video essay community is this notion of creativity. So how can we justify, how can we place a value upon creativity in a way that we haven't before? Because we've always been critics. We've always been critical. You know, there's a very long history of what it is to be critical 
what you should and shouldn't do. But it's that creativity that, that is less easy to define and a little bit risky even. Um, and there's a wonderful uh, essay by Matt Hills. He writes about this, obviously, in the context of fan studies, because I suppose creativity or kind of even enthusiasm, you know, letting enthusiasm come into your persona as an academic is something that, that those who write about fan studies or who are ACA fans have had to do. Um, and he talks about this idea of the fantasized exception. So the notion is that, you know, even as an academic, when you're writing about fans, you've got a little bit more authority than those fans. And that's how you justify this as still a scholarship rather than just as, you know, enthusiastic fandom. And I think w what you've just said reminds me of, of conversations that I've had with academics. And this is partially why I so appreciate your essay and the work that you're doing here and the preface that you, you left this issue, which is this kind of hesitancy for academics to kind of enter the space of being an artist or, or a filmmaker. Um, I think on the one hand, it comes from very legitimate concerns of not wanting to kind of co-opt a space or a tradition or to, you know, to apply for funding that is, you know, already so scarce. And now if, you know, production budgets are so slim, but also I think comes from maybe an unproductive place of like valorizing art in a way that kind of like, ah, oh, I could never tap into that myself or also just comes from a you know a understanding uh general discomfort in trying something new or a different mode of scholarly engagement um and so i'm wondering as you set about kind of curating this um you know exhibition like what who how did you end up pulling these folks together and and what was the experience like to kind of um yeah, yeah, yeah. Make this happen, and and what were kind of those conversations like in terms of thinking about how each of these works fit into the overall vision of what you were doing? So I'd written my essay, um, and right at the end of my essay, uh, I probed at this idea that the videographic diptych could have feminist, could make feminist claims. Hence, in the title of the essay, I have feminist in brackets. <laughs> So I really felt that was unfinished business and I wanted to do more. Um, and uh, in the course of writing the essay, I'd done a little bit of a survey of In Transition, thinking about uh, how I could introduce this idea of the video essay to this other community of media practitioners through talking about genres. And it's out of that that this recurring genre of the diptych arose. Um, so I knew that there were diptychs out there. I thought that this could be a new genre. I imagined that I, feminist claims could be made. I felt that this needed to be done by multiple people, you know, so it couldn't just be done by me. Uh, so I decided it would be a very fun thing to do to work with other people on this idea of the diptych. Um, and so in the course of looking at transition, I had some, you know, video essays that I loved and work that I thought, particularly from younger scholars, actually, was really promising um, and that they should have the opportunity to do more stuff. So that's how I chose um, particular contributors. Um, I thought that the diptych deserved um, 
to be thought of in relation to different kinds of media. So, you know, documentary or nonfiction animation. Um, and then also uh, from different cinemas around the world. So I was kind of looking for world cinema contributions. Uh, so I literally just emailed, well, put together a little paragraph about this idea of the diptych. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because I think like, right, the multi-screen video essay or a split screen is a genre of video essay, right? Like it's a foundational, like you just did the Middlebury exercises a few weeks ago, right? Like it's, it's, it's one of the, the, the key things. And so, but the word diptych, I, I, I associate that in my head with kind of more like the art world and, and the gallery space. So yeah, what, what was the, 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 the thought process there? Cause it clearly carries with it certain um, associations, right? I guess, you know, if you ask my unconscious academic self, I would say I was looking for a fancy word. So multi-screen, you know, split screen doesn't really do it for me. But also I think that it's quite restrictive to the screen. And I really wanted a word that connected this work to a visual history, a wider visual history. Um, and a visual history which was about comparison and compar the comparative. And so when I looked into this idea of the diptych, um, I found that, you know, diptych basically means two and fold. And I liked that idea of the fold, you know, if we can think of it in a Deleuzean way as um, time as well as space. But then also writing tablets. The, some of the first diptychs were writing tablets with folds in them. So if, in effect, notebooks. So I also like this idea that, you know, there was kind of a sketching of ideas going on in these diptychs. And then coming a bit more up to date in our, terms of art history, there are connections with Andy Warhol. You know, Warhol made Marilyn diptych, which was 25 Marilyn's colour on one side and black and white on the other. So yeah, there was this art history heritage or visual heritage that I wanted to index in calling them diptychs. Um, and most recently in my scholarship, um, as you've pointed out, artists moving images have made endless use of two screens um, and in really interesting intersectional ways. But this is something else that I discovered when I was thinking about my favourite video essay, Diptychs. Uh, so in the art world, I don't know if you know the artist Shirin Neshat, Iranian artist. So in the late 90s, 2000s, she made a series of two screen films in which you would have women on one side and men on the other. Um, and the kind of comparison that that you were making, you know, having to turn from one to the other was very interesting. Um, there's also a wonderful artist, Ayelisa Artilla, a Finnish artist, um, and she made a film strike installation. So she issued it on DVD as a film, a single screen film, and then installed it in gallery as a two screen, um, as a true screen work. Um, called the Constellation Service, which used the two screen in a very interesting way to expand a narrative. And I'd written about Attila 
and compared her to Maya Deren. So uh, in that context, the diptych was doing really interesting things, again with time, so in a non-linear way. And in fact, Deren's a really interesting reference point here for that notion of kind of folded time. Because if you think about, you know, both meshes of the afternoon and at land, in both films, we have these moments where a repetition happens and we realise that the films are kind of a spiral of time. So think about the way in meshes where we keep going through the door, don't we? We go through the door maybe five times, I think, in that film, and each time something different happens. Or think about the end of At Land, where Darren is on the beach and she kind of drops what she's holding and we see the three or four Darrens. So there's a moment where the kind of simultaneity and comparison that you get when you lay, you know, those things out, you know, that a gallery, imagine, multi-screens, is happening, but we're having to kind of think about it, not simultaneously, but um, retro. Martha Langer has a word for this. She calls it repetition backwards, I think. So anyway, that's to say that um, there are all sorts of ways of thinking about this, not just, you know, two screens, but also temporally. I don't want to. I don't want to jump ahead, but it just. I'll mention now, just because you thought of it. So, if you're listening now, that means that this this issue is live, and that you should go watch it on In Transition. I'll link to it. But what you've just said really resonated with me because one of the um, one of the videos um, mobilizing women in a few easy uh, steps by Melissa Dolman. Um, does a very well does many 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 interesting things but one thing that was i i don't think i had ever um seen before was well the diptych eventually becomes a a triptych and but before it becomes a triptych the on-screen text is in between like so sorry i'm trying i'm just realizing you can't see what i'm talking about if you're listening um but there's image on the left blank space in the middle image on the right and so there's two images playing on the far left and the far right. And then there is text that essentially annotates what's happening in between. Very interesting kind of method that I don't think I have I had seen before in a multi-screen. Like I think in the video essay, I, I would typically see the, the images right next to each other and the text maybe on the top or the bottom or the voiceover. And now that you're saying it, I that was a moment where I totally found myself going back and forth and back and forth. And the way that it, it, it is kind of playing with time and in watching it, 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 now that I'm thinking of it, I had that experience. So it was very interesting to see how, um, yeah, that, like that, that's, that's a piece that definitely recalled that kind of gallery installation uh, sort of aesthetic where I felt like I was having to move my eyes and my head and really having to choose and go back and forth. Um, I'm wondering if, I mean, obviously it would be great to talk to Melissa about this, but is that something, you know, what, what was it like? Uh, is there any insight you can shed into kind of the creation of that piece that could maybe help us understand it and add more context? <laughs> yeah, well, not to ventriloquize, but, um, here we could go back to, and I could properly answer your question about what it was like to put this together, 
because as I was saying, I chose, I had an idea, you know, that I wanted a wide range of kinds of footage uh, around world cinema. Um, and the reason I approached Melissa was because I absolutely loved the essay that she uh, published in In Transition, Gone Estray. So this was about home movie footage, which she'd been working with on her PhD. Um, in a wider context, she works on non-theatrical footage. Um, and she was uh, trying to approximate ethical questions around what she should be able to do with this footage. And it wasn't a particularly long essay, but it had a real liveliness about it that I loved. So uh, an unusual treatment of um, you know, questions that we've seen before come up in terms of home movies. And she was immediately positive about the uh, invitation and said she wanted to work on non-theatrical footage and in particularly on PR films made by these two American airlines. Um, so she knew what she wanted to work on. Um, and then the, um, so it was actually March 2021 that I sent out these invitations. And then from July or August that year, we started having regular Zoom conversations where each person would present their work so far and we would comment on it. Uh, and that was really amazing. And that went on till April 2022 when the peer review process started to happen. So in the course of presenting her footage, what Melissa um, spoke about was the way that she was having real trouble making a video essay, you know, so in other words, um, intervening in the footage that she was using because it, it's very didactic. It's got this patronizing tone to it. Um, you know, it's made for a particular purpose. It's not baggy. There's nothing extra that you can, you know, you can't have a cinephiliac moment. <laughs> we would put it because the, the footage is very tight and so she came up with that third space as her way of you know commenting on the footage um, so it's very interesting that you picked up on that and you know I suppose in tune with what I'd recognized in her first essay which was this liveliness this playfulness I love the way that she calls it a triptych you know given that the footage is about going on a trip um, and got the kind of triple nature of it as well. Mm. Wow. I'm so that's, um, I'm so glad I asked. It's so great to hear about that process. This whole conversation. Yeah. is almost like the, the third segment of a traditional video essay podcast where we talk about the work of others and all the, 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 you know, what struck us about it. And, but with the added benefit that you've gotten to kind of see these works through. And so it, it's really great to, it's really interesting to hear that you all were kind of working on these, uh, that you would, it sounds like you had, you know, um, kind of a mini workshop or gathering or community based around the, the creation of this. So, you know, in, 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 in general terms, like what was that like? And I guess, what was it like for you? Like what, as an editor, right? I imagine this is different. Editing something like this was much different than editing writing, for example? Uh, well, I suppose um, the first thing to say is that, so we started this in 2021, and it says something that 
at that point in time, it was very obvious that the video essay community is incredibly collaborative, you know, and that projects are always outward looking to the community. So that's why I must have picked up on that. <laughs> you know, that's why um, I conceived the project in that way. Uh, that wasn't an original thing. I recognize the sense of sharing and collaboration. And maybe actually it goes back to what we were talking about in relation to authority. You know, there's still a tentativeness in this community, despite the fact that it includes people who are practitioners, who do have the, you know, the know-how. There's still a kind of generosity and in a way a humbleness. Um, and that's rather wonderful. So if we were to compare this process to putting together any special issue, it's certainly the case that we did share our work more than you would if you're writing an essay. And we did talk about it at its various stages and probably help shape it uh, more than we would with any other essay. Um, so I can think about a couple of other examples whereby group feedback um, helped shape the final product. Um, and the other one is uh, Nicole Erin Morse's essay on Dress to Kill. Um, and again, uh, when I invited Nicole, it was because I, I absolutely loved their essay on Transparent. They've been published in, in Transition. I've, they've also been to the Middlebury workshop. I think it started off there. Um, and they immediately said they won, were working on an essay, actually, a written essay on Dress to Kill. Uh, so I think uh, in inviting or in putting together this invitation to work on the diptych, they thought they'd been thinking about Dress to Kill and the doubling, doubling in the character, the main uh, character that Michael Caine plays, who is a kind of sick Sick doctor, trans feminine, sick doctor is the way that Nicole likes to put it. But in the course of thinking a little bit more about the essay and our various discussions, they came instead to the conclusion that they wanted to compare two other characters. So the, the kind of obvious and very problematic um, representation of the trans feminine in the killer shifted to them thinking about the shared relations of Liz the prostitute who's I suppose the main uh, active protagonist and Peter the son whose mother is killed at the start of the film um, and as well as that shift which came about through discussion um, there were a few moments where when people shared, um, you know, updates of their work, it was incredibly surprising. <laughs> At one moment, which maybe you can remember, is when in Nicole's video essay, we have this black bar. In a way, this leads on to thinking about the affordances of comparison. What Nicole does in a really ingenious way and perhaps unlikely way, is rather than taking two characters, let's say, from different worlds, 
uh, which is certainly what Maud Koitering does in her essay, and comparing them, you know, so bringing together characters that are actually from different worlds and far apart. They take two characters in the same shot and in the same world and then divide them up. And for me, you know, this was a way of using comparison that I hadn't really thought of uh, because it's not a juxtaposition. You know, juxtaposition is placing things that were far away in proximity, placing in nearness. It's something that instead asks us to to look differently, asks us to notice symmetry and um, in terms of kind of characters and narrative, sympathy. Um, So it draws our attention to the potential for Liz and Peter, and hopefully this is a spoiler, um, to, to share something that in the film world, you know, the film world can't conceive of it. But Nicole wants to conceive of it, wants to rehearse that possibility. So, yeah, that was a really startling and um, lovely moment when they shared the black line dividing the screen i have to say i'm not i'm i'm i i like let out a little when i watched that in the video because i i i I don't i i didn't not that i had an expectation but to your point i i never i just didn't conceive of that like you know when you're watching these and i think i had maybe watched you know i'd watched a couple um before i had got to theirs and i was like oh wow and I felt that it was a moment where you could really, as you say, kind of, um, I really felt their authorship in, in in kind of that gesture. And that here is the video essayist kind of literally like making their, their mark and doing this thing to the image that's going to end in a very, like, it, 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 it's, you know, it's not like, you know... Um, God, I, I hate this word. That's not what I mean, but like simple. It's not right. Like it's it's uh, or it's very elegant. It's very minimalist gesture that really just kind of blows your mind and totally changes the way that you're viewing the film. It goes back to this what I was saying about that connecting this work to a visual history, because uh, Nicole does use voiceover. You know, they uh, frame the video through a contemporary moment and through their own voice. But here's something that is a visual intervention. Um, and and I suppose akin with many visual intervention, throws it back on the viewer. So, you know, it's showing rather than telling. Yeah, it's a wonderful moment. Yeah, I, I guess more more generally, like I guess I just want to keep talking about the works um, in this issue. So I, I guess... Um, yeah, any insight? You mentioned um, Maud's piece, um, who I also got to know at, at, at uh, Middlebury, which was wonderful. Um, and again, kind of, it's 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 taking two films um, together. So again, without kind of ventriloquizing, um, for, you know, for you as an editor, um, and you know, is there anything that particular that um, you feel is worth worth mentioning as kind of a preview to you know we're trying not to spoil the videos or get you know you should go watch them but um 
curious. <laughs> Without being reductive, I really don't want to be reductive, but we can probably talk about Maud Koiterich's video and Paola Vocci's video together because they have a shared project to use comparison to think about the history of women and moving images. For Maud, uh, so her video essay is called Resilient Aging Women, A Question of Performance. Um, and for Paula, who is a wonderful colleague of mine from Otago University, um, whose work has been largely on small screens in China, she works on um, online images, animation, and documentary films. Uh, Paola's video is called Reanimating the Vanishing Woman from Invisible Labor to Embodied Gesture. They both engage with film history and the history of images of women. For Maud, this is aging women, what she calls aging women, rather beautiful aging women, <laughs> inevitably. Um, and for Paola, this is women in animation. Um, and I think what is interesting is that they both use the conventions of the material that they're taking. So for Maud, she's engaging with art cinema um, and she really um, interrogates the nature of the image, the nature of the way in which women are captured in two art films. One is um, Lemon Tree, um, a Palestinian film, and the other is La Nobia del Desierto. I'm not sure what the translation is because she doesn't translate it. Uh, so, you know, we recognize the familiar, beautiful lighting and framing, and in particular, close-ups on these women. Um, and in her previous work, um, Maud has been looking, uh, practicing a form of what she calls microanalysis. So looking really closely at women's gestures and movements and their relation to space. And in this video essay, she's very interested in head movements. Uh, and this is such a fascinating area. She uses um, literature from performance studies um, and ageing studies as well, uh, to think about how uh, ageing women's um, lives are prescribed and limited um, in the world, but then equally how they are framed in the cinema uh, and how through performance they can transcend those limits, I suppose. And it really is on a micro level so she's literally analysing a tilt of a head or, you know, the blink of an eye. Um, and this is an example, I suppose, of close textual analysis, but taken to another level. Right. Explicitly, I think she remarks she doesn't want the context, right, of the individual films. Um, I think she remarks in her in her written statement, if I'm remembering correctly? Yes, she doesn't engage as much with those, even though, in fact, the narrative trajectories of the two characters are quite similar. They both encounter men um, who they reject. You know, this is not the happy ending at all. And I suppose uh, in saying that she doesn't want that context, what Maud is pointing to 
is that she just want to isolate these performances. And close sexual analysis is particularly important, but performed on a micro level that you can do in premiere, you know, we couldn't have done when certainly I was stopping and starting VHS videos <laughs> and not seeing very much. Uh, so I suppose Maud's essay connects with, you know, stylistic analysis in movie, for example, and those kind of video essays from John Gibb and Doug Pye or Adrian Martin, where we are being asked to look at mise-en-scene. Although in this case, it's the mise-en-scene of the actresses, I suppose. Right. And certainly calls for, and I think has a great sense for when, to, like different ways of presenting the diptych. Right. Sometimes it's a, it's a vertical um, diptych, sometimes it's horizontal and kind of the this kind of collage effect um, and how it she's directing our own eye to be seen. I very much felt that in watching. Yes, you're right. The multitude of choices that she makes are quite exemplary. It's not just side by side, you know, the, the, um, the dividing line moves and um yeah it's kind of uh, above and below uh, but in all cases i do think that she's commenting on art cinema and you know those stylistic elements that we recognize as part of art cinema so this isn't just about aging women per se it's about aging women in art or world cinema uh, and i think what we find so coming back to this question of what the diptych, the affordances of the diptych, is a kind of counter-narrative of ageing. If we look really carefully or, you know, she's pointing it out to us, that can be found in the kind of sympathy. So again, we're talking about sympathy, but she fashions between the two films. And this counter-narrative, which it's interesting that you say that she wants to extract you know, she doesn't want to give attention to the background because really the counter narrative is affirmative and resistant in spite of the background, in contrast to the background. So the strategies that she employs, this close textual analysis, find something different in the films, which possibly, possibly we would have found when we watched them singly, but has more of an impact when you put them together. And I suppose there are questions here to be raised about um, the claims that you can make through a diptych as opposed to a supercut. So, you know, in a supercut, we might, about aging women in art cinema, we might imagine more of an impact because you simply have more examples. But could you look at these examples on the same micro visual level? I don't think so, you know, because your, your eye, <laughs> coming back to eye tracking and, and your attention is kind of divided. Paola Vocci also uses the codes and conventions of animation to make her argument in a really wonderful way. Um, and, particularly she draws from early cinema. Um, and a really key scholarly uh, reference for her, which is pointed to in the title of her video essay, 
is Karen Redrobe's book on vanishing women, which spends a lot of time talking about early cinema. Um, so Paola takes one very well-known animator, uh, Lottie Reininger, um, and one lesser-known Chinese animator, Yu Jamin, and kind of compares the two. And I suppose, in a way, uh, I have affinities with what Paola is doing, because in both of our video essays, we get one woman to retell the story of another woman. So we have a kind of revisioning going on. Um, and in her video essay, you've got, you know, you've got irises, you've got a wonderful kind of Melier-like trick music, women disappear and reappear. Um, and the reason for using the Chinese animator Liu Jiamin's um, film, very short film, is that Liu Jiamin kind of takes herself apart in her animation. So there are fragmented women's bodies. Um, there is an exploration of creativity itself um, and that idea of kind of animation in terms of life but also as a cinematic technique is explored it's a very layered film again it's quite short I think it's about 12 minutes but definitely deserves multiple viewings oh absolutely and I think is a does an excellent job in kind of matching the kind of the aesthetic of the material that it's working with in particular. And when it's directing our attention to kind of the labor of animation and who has historically been, uh, whose labor has historically not been properly credited or appreciated or understood um, and kind of brings that kind of materiality to uh, the use itself, the, kind of the, the editing and the, the 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 framing of the image um in particular in a way that kind of yeah has this really this really great quality that adds another kind of I think really helped me know how to watch and understand kind of the the, the diptych that is uh, appearing before me um and I also want to talk about your yours um as well. So you also have a contribution um, in this uh, in this issue. And so I guess we have the we have the creator here. So just describe for us what like, how did you, you know, as best you can kind of conceive of 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 your project kind of start to finish? And what was it like for you to be making while editing, <laughs> editing in the putting the, I guess, editing and editing, two different kinds of editing you were doing, video editing and scholarly journal editing. <laughs> well, the way in which I've described the collaborative um, organisation of the project really helped. I think all of us. Uh, so having talked you through some of the other video essays, it's easier to talk about mine because, of course, I can do the comparative sense now. <laughs> So we talked about Melissa Dolman's triptych. I suppose I've got a polyptych. <laughs> There's such a thing. Um, so I did have a kernel of an idea when I wrote to everyone about feminist diptychs. 
Uh, and that was, um, so we were coming off a year in lockdown, of course, by 2021. And there had been a few TV series engaging with Me Too and the Harvey Weinstein case um, that I was really interested in. Um, and I wanted to take two series. So one was The Morning Show, which was is pretty well known, I think, on Apple TV and obviously, you know, quite a mainstream example with the problems that come with that. And another was a more independent, wonderful show, which, again, quite a few people know now called I May Destroy You. So the start of, idea, of that idea, which is what I showed to everyone in our first Zoom, was um, the fact that uh, a monologue by the main character, Michaela, in I May Destroy You, just seemed to reveal so much when played against the credit sequences of the morning show. So this has ended up towards the start of this video essay. And people may recall, if you've seen the morning show, the credit sequences are a series of dots and a black dot. And the black dot almost takes on... Uh, a kind of affective role as it pushes out the other coloured dots and seems to boss them around and get in the way and, you know, just do inappropriate things, which is what the series is all about. It's about Mitch, played by Steve Carell, doing inappropriate things. But, you know, in the working day, nobody holds him to account and then it accumulates and accumulates. And in the monologue by... Um, Michaela, uh, she plays the character of Arabella, she tells us about how harassment works. So you've got her words telling us about harassment works played over these coloured dots. And I didn't know what else I was going to do. <laughs> it seemed to work and everyone agreed that it seemed to work. And of course, it was the first kind of comparison. Um, and then it naturally extended to um, uh, taking the form of so what I have in the video essay is Michaela retelling the story of a character from the morning show Hannah who totally illogically commits suicide at the end of the, the series and there are a couple of important interventions I think that I wanted to make in taking those two characters one was around how race has and hasn't figured in this discourse around Me Too and harassment. So typically the stories that have been told have been white stories, white middle-class stories. It's It's been acknowledged. Whereas here I had two black or mixed race characters and one retelling the story of another one. Um, so that's connections with the discourse. And then connections with the morning show itself there's no real narrative reason why Hannah commits suicide. But in terms of the arc of the programme, it allows the two white women to, you know, bring their show to a close. It returns attention to the two white women. So in choosing those other two characters to focus upon it, hopefully, you know, readjusted, revisioned that narrative and drew, drew attention to the place of race, to the place of race in it um, then so you have those two characters going through 
the video essay and this idea that a story is being retold. And I, I think here I was very much influenced again by, you know, my feminist, um, I nearly wanted to say grandmothers, no, those who had been before me, such as Sally Hunter, um, and you may know in her short film Thriller, she has a character, again, a black character, actually, who's interrogating the narrative of La Boheme, who's, who's effectively Mimi, Mimi in La Boheme, and, you know, through um, dance and through photography and through theory, she realises that her place in the narrative was an unjust place. And she was just there, you know, to make the her um, lover in the narrative seem more tragic when she died. So similar thing going on in my video essay. Um, but I also found that it wasn't enough, really, to have those two women. I wanted to make wider connections. So I also bring in um, Megan Tui and Jodie Comer, who wrote the film, uh, who wrote the book, sorry, she said, uh, the journalist who investigated Harvey Weinstein, and Bridget Riley, because the credit sequence of the morning show immediately reminded me of Bridget Riley's, you know, dot paintings or swirly paintings, her op art, anyway. Uh, so that uh, allowed a visual, a connection back to visual um, culture, which we've talked about through this interview. Um, and what was striking and what, why I wanted to bring in those other two women was in various footage from both of them, so documentaries about Bridget Riley and interviews by Megan and Jody, they kept talking about this idea of, of, you know, nobody could really see this. We had to do particular things to help people to see this. They, they, they kind of cross over those two in terms of the notion of the pattern. So what they both seem to be saying was, everybody knows this happens, in an everyday context, you know, we ignore it. But if you put it together, then you can see the pattern. Only then can we address it. And in different ways, they were talking about being the experts who help us to see the pattern. So Megan and Jody were the journalistic experts who, you know, had this overview of all these things that had happened over all this time. And Bridget Riley was the artistic expert, if you like, who used um, lines and colour and shapes in such a way that you go through what she calls a kind of, um, what does she call it? A visual event. So you stand in front of her paintings, you think you see one thing, but the longer you stay, because of the perceptual effect she's using, the more you have a visual event, you know, the more things change. It's a still painting, but it's like a moving experience, I suppose. So, yeah, I wanted to bring those two other voices, if you like, to bear upon this subject of sexual harassment and abuse. And then we also have you as the scholar 
doing something similar, right? In in kind of laying this out for us. And it's very, I think, to kind of also gesture back to what we were talking about earlier and kind of the relationship between maybe like the avant-garde and, and video essays that I would maybe more associate with kind of avant-garde found footage, this idea of like restaging or reimagining or like remaking a work, like something like Meeting of Two Queens, for example, right? Like a work like that, um, where whereas uh, the video essay maybe is is doing more of that kind of critical whatever. But here in this issue, in your work and works of others, we kind of have that that blending together, right? Where we have that scholarly critical mode, but also kind of this um, replaying, reimagining, uh, restaging. I think was a, a, a term we mentioned earlier, um, and it's and it's quite brilliant to see the way that your work and the other works. Um, yeah, kind of, kind of sit at these intersections. I'd love you to say more about that, particularly the meeting of the dreams. Can you, can you say something more? I think increasingly um, this idea of play is something that in the videographic criticism world generally, I think is um, such an important part of it, but that the play somehow needs to like lead to something that doesn't feel like play. Um, whatever that may be. Um, and in a work like Meeting Two Queens, obviously there's a, there's a, there's a critical, for those aren't familiar, uh, Meeting of Two Queens is a, um, is, is a video montage by uh, uh, Cecilia Barriga in which she, um, you know, takes clips of Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo um, and, you know, re-edits them so that they're essentially fall, falling in love and is this kind of, um, you know, great queer, found footage work um and it's also a work that many video essayists i have heard kind of cite as an influence for how they kind of relate on their thinking but i think increasingly maybe that you know there's the avant-garde tradition and the video essay tradition and it's this idea of you know exploring how video essay is an outgrowth of the avant-garde is something that i'm very interested in and so for me in watching this issue i think it's um drawing that connection so clearly and also kind of showing that these boundaries that maybe we've set amongst ourselves as videographic critics um, are much more porous and non-existent um, than we would, you know, that we would believe. Um, and I think like, it's very interesting to think about the relationship between the avant-garde and, and academia, right? Like in thinking about that, um, you know, they have these long-standing histories and now maybe the scholarly is is making its way into the avant-garde in a yeah, in a really interesting way um and i think we should we should embrace that and so it's for me this issue was kind of on the whole gave me um very you know some very exciting innovative things being done on a technical level but then i also think kind of the the theoretical overview of, of your editing um your editorship um, I think breaks down a lot of those barriers that I'm personally interested in kind of inter interrogating um, and exploring more. Yeah. It, and I'm, you know, I'm thrilled that we're having this conversation where we compare. Remember I said, I want to create a joined up community where we're, well, how does this video essay compare to this um, queer reading against the grain or uh, avant garde or this, uh, artist moving image and uh, thinking about 
terms in particular, I think we can make a, a different, we can, I think we can think differently about three gestures. One is replaying, another is reenacting, and the third is remaking. Um, and in a previous essay um, in 2011, I was trying to think about um, how we might join up avant-garde filmmaking that uses found footage and um, films that were ending up in the gallery. And uh, I was arguing that there are these three different gestures. I think replaying just takes the same footage and doesn't do much to it, so keeps it intact. So we can think about the famous 24-hour psycho by Douglas Gordon. So, you know, he slows down the film, but essentially the film is the same. Uh, and at that point in time, in contrast to avant-garde cinema, that gesture is influenced by a kind of cinephilia, I suppose, because did you have the opportunity to um, experience 24-hour psycho at all? No, other than reading about it. And I think I've seen like clips that are not it, but like, you know, slow it down to that frame. Or maybe I've seen a recording of it hanging in a gallery, but not for the full 24 hours. I wish I had. I've seen 24 Second Psycho, which I think is a video that's on YouTube, which is really funny to see. <laughs> it's definitely something to experience. It's an event, but the experience of it, and I think I only stayed for maybe an hour, is um, is cinephilic. It's a celebration because, in a way, what that slowing down does is it, you know, for a start, means that the experience of watching it is a suspenseful one. You're totally in suspense, waiting for something to happen. But it emphasizes also the monumentality of the film, you know, the greatness of the film, the canonicness of the film. Um, so it's not such a critical move as we might have found in, say, Ken Jacobs' work or Ma Malcolm Le Grice's work or, you know, those 70s filmmakers who, when they took found footage, wanted to do different things with it, wanted to intervene much more. So there we have our replaying tradition. And then reenacting um, would be examples such as the artist Pierre Wieg. Um, and what he did was he filmed scenes that hadn't existed in the original films. So he takes a moment in The American Friend by Vin Vendors, in which Bruno Gantz um, goes from, his, from one place to another, and we don't see how he gets there. And Pierre Wieg films Bruno Gantz 20 years later, walking across this bridge which is how he would have got there. So you can see there's kind of an, an enactment, a reenactment going on. So we're getting closer to the artist bringing something new. Um, and then replaying would be examples where artists completely refilm something, but um, in reference to an original. So, for example, Steve McQueen, who we now know as, you know, a filmmaker, started off in the gallery and he made this um, single screen film which filled the whole of one wall of the gallery where he was reenact it was called deadpan and he's reenacting the moment in the Buster Keaton film where the house falls on him so 
Dean McQueen stands and we see him from one angle, then we see him from another and the house falls. And so completely remaking. And I think going back to our earlier conversation about authority, academics have found it to be the case that when they take this fan footage, they have to make more of an intervention upon it. They can't just slow it down as Douglas Gordon did um, and leave it at that. And I suppose there could be some reenactment going on. We could think of examples. But it is more of a remaking. It's, um, you know, this is my intervention. This is what I add to it. Um, and this is my, why we should value it, I suppose. First of all, thank you for that lot. And where does reimagining fit into the remaking? Because I think that that reimagining, that presenting it as something new, to me feels like a different intervention than maybe what a like that feels like an intervention that maybe a lot of scholarly videos aren't trying to do. And for legitimate reasons, like I'm not making a value judgment. I'm just, you know, making a distinction. Is that your sense? Because it seems to me that um, is maybe what I was referring to when I was talking about like the meeting of, of two Queens where it's making an intervention, but it's reimagining rather than remaking in the videographic sense. Reimagining rather than remaking. Would that be closer to the example I gave of the Pierre Week, where he's adding something, but in between the, the real footage? I'm wondering where in those three, like where would you put Martin Arnold's work in those three, like a, you know, like a PS Touche, like where, what, like where does that fall, for example? I think Arnold, for me, is more in line with the avant-garde tradition of being mm -hmm. overly critical. So mm -hmm. let's think this through. Let's do a thought experiment because I don't know where I'm going with this, <laughs> but I, I love the fact that you brought up Martin Arnold because I often think about him in comparison to Laura Mulvey and her Gentlemen Prefer Bonds video, which I remember mm -hmm. kicks off right. in transition. Yes. You think about... Um, <laughs> Is it Pierce Touche that takes um, To Kill a Mockingbird? No, I think that's Passage Alak. Okay, so let's think of yes. Alact, where Gregory Peck is having breakfast with his children, isn't he? So, you know, heart, heart, harmonious family scene. But as you know, what Arnold does with it is he turns it into a kind of horror film in a way through the, you know, and forth through the stopping and starting, through the juddering, through the kind of hysterical movements that he creates by stopping and starting this film. And I think that he is using optical printing. I think he is using film yes, rather is. than video, yes. so in contrast to Mulvey. So there's an uncanniness in what, what results out of that. There's a kind of uncomfortableness, would you agree, when we're watching? We think about bodies, we think about how bodies move, we think about the machinery as well. Um, contrast that with Laura Mulvey's exercise, 
And even though she does stop and start Marilyn Monroe's gestures, her dance moves and her performance, she still more or less leaves Monroe intact. Um, she says, I think, um, at the very end, her commentary anyway on that video is that she wanted us to see the skills, the amazingness of this performance. I guess we have to treat that comment in relation to the fact that, you know, maybe scholars hadn't appreciated Marilyn Monroe's um, gestures and movements as a skilled performance. So there's a feminist intent there as well. But I think, you know, when we're contrasting those two in terms of your question about replaying and, no, sorry, remaking and what was the other term we're thinking about? Uh, <laughs> um, reimagining. Reimagining. <laughs> I don't think she, I don't think Marvie's reimagining, is she? Uh, so she doesn't want to intervene too much. Arnold, is he reimagining? I mean, I imagine he would not say he. It's less about. It's less making a critical argument about To Kill a Mockingbird than making his own film. I think you've got it. You hit the nail on the head there. Yes, because what maybe what that difference is, what what that contrast between Arnold and Mulvey is, it's 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 one about artistic license. So you know, earlier when you were saying how can we think about this work in relation to the art world and academics in relation to artists and surely academics think that they shouldn't take up that space. Yeah, maybe there's an authority that comes with being an artist, you know, through which it means that whatever you do, it's yours. Whereas for us, academia has always been about, uh, so Jacques Oman talks about this, he says, um, as a film scholar, and this is pre-video essay days, what do I do? I stand beside the material. You know, I, in fact, that idea of standing beside, you don't stand in front of it. <laughs> you stand beside it, you accompany it. So that's very different from the artist who replaces, in a way, replaces the material with their artistic gesture. So I think you're onto something, Will. <laughs> so to bring it back full circle, like th this is kind of where I was going with this. Maybe we've gotten somewhere. To me, when Nicole Morse draws the line, that to me is an artist. Like I, it's a scholarly gesture, but it's also an artistic gesture, right? It's reimagining. This is just a podcast, so no one hold me to any. No one hold us to any terminology. Or, this is a thought experiment, but it, it's a reimagining. It's doing something that Laura Mulvey's video, if we can keep, is not as much interested in, 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 in doing like, I, and I think that's what this issue in total and, and how you framed it, but also in experiencing it through videos like Nicole's and, and yours as well. And, and even in mods. Um, and I mean, really all of them actually, um, that's sort of where my head was at. And that's where I think I see the boundary the, the, the Martin Arnold Mulvey boundary begin to blur, <laughs> as it were. I think that's a great point. And I think Nicole will be very uh, curious about what you just said there. Definitely. If you're listening to this now, that means that these videos are are out in the world on In Transition. Um, 
And so please go watch them. You know, we'll link to it at the video essay.com in the description of this podcast. Kathy, I could ask you a million more questions. I and I'm very interested to hear how people will respond uh, to the to the thought experiment that we had. So send in your letters. <laughs> we'll be eager to know. So Kathy, thank you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me. Thank you, Will. So, you know, given that we've got our cameras on, this visual diptych here has been incredibly intellectually stimulating. process through which the videos came to be. As you remember, contributors were invited and we had regular Zoom meetings where we could present our work and give feedback. And it's worth mentioning how fascinating that process was when we got to Mariam Tafakari's Zoom meeting. I haven't mentioned Mariam yet, um, but most video essayists will probably know that her background is slightly different. She's an experimental filmmaker and she's made several short films. In her short films, she re-edits Iranian cinema. So she has this rather massive project. Um, I think she's been working on 200 plus Iranian films. So she's also a, an interesting case of um, where experimental cinema might intersect with videographic filmmaking. And I have to admit, when I invited her, I didn't know whether, you know, that would be an imposition, whether she would feel like it was really something that she couldn't do, um, or whether she would um, approve of it. But I invited her to contribute because of several of her films that I'd seen, which focus upon a sense of... Um, we could say, a faulty or restrictive representation of femininity. So there's something that she finds in Iranian cinema on a number of different levels that, that she's not happy with. And she seems to use formal and aesthetic strategies that videographic scholarship has borrowed. Um, and when you have a look at her three-minute video, hopefully that becomes a little bit more... Um, obvious what I'm trying to say. Uh, another example then of the blurring of the worlds of experimental cinema and of videographic scholarship. To come back to Mariam's Zoom meeting, which was met several months before um, the issue finally came together. Uh, in the meeting, she presented a few examples of ways in which good and bad women could be compared and contrasted. And even at that early stage, uh, a couple of really strong um, things uh, were evident. So first of all, what was evident was the challenge that she was facing of extracting one video. So making just one little video from part of her larger project, because obviously her larger project is massive. And it was clear that there were endless examples of women being depicted as good or bad. It is a key trope of Iranian cinema um, and being depicted via props, costume, gesture and dialogue, among other things. But that's largely what she picks out. And then the second striking element in her Zoom meeting was how she works with rhythm in a very expansive sense. 
So everything from the rhythm of editing, the duration of shots, to how pattern and color and shapes and movements can create a visual rhythm when they're um, put together in more, across more than one screen, um, which I think has a very affective um, tendency. Um, to the rhythm created by soundtrack, which even in the raw exercises that she showed us at the very beginning was really carefully composed. So clearly she thinks about soundtrack from the very beginning. Some time went by um, after the Zoom meeting before I saw Mariam's finished draft. And I really think she solved that challenge of extracting a small idea from a larger project. And she's done it by adding a personal element. So she frames the video with a quote from Siksu, um, which could also be actually Mariam herself. And she plays with that duality, reflecting upon her relationship to these women. Uh, and that personal element, uh, which is actually also used by Nicole at the start of her video essay, really helps us to reflect upon what the video essay is, is doing to the material. So it, it gives us that frame um, and it asks us to be conscious of that and to think about that. And then coming back to the second point I was making from the first Zoom meeting about rhythm. When I saw the finished draft, I felt that the rhythm was incredibly affective. You know, it really gave us lots of feelings, if I can say that, um, across the video and changing feelings. But also it supported a sense of a kind of violence. And certainly for me, this comes through very strongly, particularly at the start of the video. So the first minute makes use of a quadrant format. So we have four squares across the screen and we have images mirrored across vertically or diagonally and, and this shifts. And the pace with which they change makes it hard for us to keep up with them, which we try to do. We, we intuitively try to keep up with those images as they're changing and take things in, almost in an anxious way, I suppose. But I felt that um, that that's the start of the video really hurt my eyes uh, and that maybe you know this was a commentary upon the damage that um, Iranian cinema has done to women both the representation of women and then uh, how that finds its way out into the real world to real world Iran as well I think um, perhaps to wrap up this reflection upon Mariam's video essay, she seems to find new ways to work with and work against the diptych format. Uh, so she has these quadrants, she uses rhythm, both visual rhythm and um, sound very, very distinctively. Um, and she catches the viewer she catches the viewer in this state of kind of frustration, maybe um, pain, <laughs> I was saying, um, but then 
also possibly towards the end satisfaction. We become more satisfied as the images slow down and thin out. So we either have two images or one image um, and we see these women touching their faces. And at that point, um, I mean, you know, it's open for interpretation and that's the point of the video. But I think for my part, I'd say there's the possibility of more of a kinship or affinity or solidarity between these two women, the good and the bad ones. Mm -hmm.